This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Where's the try? And he's always prepared to give it a go. Off the ball on BFM 89.9. Hello, it's Off the Ball with myself, Cam Raslan, and today we have a front two. He is uh, Gogolin. Hello, everyone. Good to be back on a Monday after a long time. Ah, yeah, great to have you here. And he is Kishnan Sundaresan. Hello, hello, guys. What a weekend of football it was. It, yeah, it was. It was, a, it was a, quite a weekend. So we have uh, today, we got the FA Cup final. We've got the, well, we're wrapping up the steadily the Premier League and Championship playoffs as well as C games. So let's start, uh, guys, with the FA Cup final, which I thought was a really exciting nil-nil. And you had Chelsea having 10 shots to Liverpool, 17, 2-2 two two on target. Um, you know, for a nil-nil, it had everything. Goglin? Of course, it's the FA Cup final that lived up to its name, you know, the two of the, I mean, three of the, biggest teams in football right now are City, Liverpool and Chelsea. So for them to, Liverpool and Chelsea to be playing in the FA Cup final. And I think, you know, the desire for the Liverpool fans on that quadruple that they're going for. And I, I, I never knew that Klopp never won the FA Cup, you know, until now. So, you know, so I think that was a burning desire. But, you know, Chelsea gave as good as they got. It wasn't a rollover that I expected. And, you know, I'm just wondering about Tuchel's uh, tinkering though half the time, you know, taking off Lukaku and all that. But, yeah, well, yeah, you know that, that something's thing, up there. Something's yeah, up. something's happening with that one. I'm, I'm sure Keish can elaborate on that part a bit more. But you know, I've just really don't understand that tinkering. You know, they 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 give as good as they got again. And I was just worried. I'm just wondering why why all that uh, tinkering that goes on in Tuchel's mind because that Chelsea team was set up quite good. You know, to absorb those attacks and you know and hit them on the counter. And they, again, it was not actually only a counter attack play. It was. It was a uh, end-to-end uh, stuff at the FA Cup final. Kish, have you got the inside word on uh, troubles at uh, Chelsea? <laughs> I'm not so sure about troubles. I think, uh, to a large extent, it's what it's one of the problems that Thomas Tuchel has been uh, facing for the entire season, which is that he it's a similar problem that he had when he first joined the club, uh, which is that this was a squad that was assembled without any specific philosophy in mind. So bear in mind that when he took over, he took over Frank Lampard's squad, essentially. And that team was was built upon what Frank Lampard wanted at the club. Um, but Tuchel just sort of made the best out of it. And then in the summer, they went and bought um, Lukaku and, and a couple of other players. And and it, it still, when I look at this Chelsea squad, it still reminds me of a team of individuals rather than a cohesively constructed team. Now, you look at the Liverpool team and the way it's been built, you know every signing is there for a very specific reason and every signing was sanctioned by Jurgen Klopp um, regardless of whether it was suggested by Michael Edwards or, or any other recruitment people within the club. But it all went through a similar philosophy, a similar uh, 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 playing plan. But with Chelsea, you, you, you don't know if that's the case. And I think a, a smaller reflection of that happens in games like this FA Cup final was an example where there was a bit of tinkering like Gokes pointed out. But we've seen that in previous games as well. I think in the Champions League, we saw that as well. He, he tried to tweak the, the setup here and there. I think he's he's struggling. Tuchel is struggling to, to understand what his best um, 11 is, what his best system is. And it sometimes can come to to hurt them in this tie. But but obviously against Liverpool, I thought they were, they were pretty good as well. Um, but when it came down to the penalties... Um, 
and and here's where Liverpool have the advantage because uh, immediately after the the shootout, I think Jurgen Klopp spoke about the fact that uh, Liverpool worked very closely with a company called Neo Eleven, uh, yeah. who are who are apparently penalty uh, penalty kick specialists. Yeah. Um, they've got models. They can coach teams. They can break things down, and they worked very closely with Liverpool, and that gave them that that bit of marginal gain that allowed them to to sneak a win over Chelsea at the end. Can I, can I just ask this Neo Eleven? Do they work? For England as well. <laughs> yeah, I think they do. <laughs> they better had. I mean, <laughs> there's one organization that needs some help. Um, hey, Gogland, you know, uh, you were saying that you, you just discovered that Klopp uh, hadn't won the FA Cup, but one person who's won everything with Liverpool is Jordan Henderson. He's, you know, Premier League, Champions League, FA Cup. Well, now. And, and Alexander <laughs> Trent, Alexander. Mm. I, I'm wondering, as we come up to the end of the season, there are a lot of players who are not the glamorous players, but like um, Henderson, Milner, what what do you think they, they contribute? Uh, there's a reason why, as as uh, Keish was saying, you know, the choice, the decisions are very clear. There's a reason why Klopp has these players. What do they contribute? They're, they are the workhorses of the team, you know, the the the, the Peter Beardsleys of the team. You know, I mean, I'm not sure whether you remember Peter Beardsley. Of course. But, you know, so the Peter Beardsley of the team, the workhorses, the ones that are running, chugging, you know, picking up the loose passes, the connecting the the the. I mean, you always have your star players, you know, but the star players are the ones who hog the limelight. But they, these are the guys who do all the work behind the scenes kind of thing, you know. They are the ones who connect the players. The, the, the Milner is another case in point. He's the ultimate workhorse. If you put a stat on him on the amount of kilometers he runs and all that, you know, it's it's it's. Uh, I I really I think there's a stat that says that he runs the most in the, when he plays, you know, because he's always there chasing down the thing. So Henderson, Hendo, and uh, uh, Milner. These are the these are the typical workhorse players each team needs. Each title-winning sides have all these type of players. Roy Keane was one of those players, you know. These are the players. Roy Keane famously is, you know, he was the captain, right? And he 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 was the captain also in name that he brought the he brought the team together. But on the pitch, he contributed so much behind the scenes, you know, connecting this fair players of the Giggsies, the Becks, you know, mm. Roy at that time. Mm. I, th- I think that kind of players in short supply though now. I don't. I don't think there are that many yeah, coming so, up. Yeah, they're, they're coming up, but they, I mean, yeah, you, they play for the teams like Leeds and you know Brentford's and the, the the Brentford's and the Leeds and the Villas have all these players who are who are workhorses who who do not who are not uh, big names. You know, they're not the Salas and the uh, Manes and the Firminos of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you called him Masala there for a second. But, uh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, let's let's have a quick look then, uh, Kish, at the. It's not an FA Cup final, but the other uh, team vying for number one spot, well, not even vying, they hold the number one spot, Man City. They played West Ham. It was West Ham 2, Man City 2. We have a title race. Yeah, we do. We do. We definitely do. Um, it, it's, it was an incredible game of football, honestly. At one point, I thought this was it. I thought this was going to be the game that, um, that, that caused that downfall for Man City because West Ham genuinely looked good. And here's the thing about West Ham, though, because for the entire season, I've been wondering where was the West Ham that we saw early earlier in the season because they started the season with the bang and, and Antonio looked like a completely different player at the beginning of the season, but we sort of saw that fade away a little bit throughout the middle of the middle of the season and towards the end. But against City, we saw that version of West Ham that we knew was somewhere in there. And I was wondering... And, and I was talking about talking about it to a friend and 
And he pointed out that, hey, but like they've, they've been focusing on the Europa League. This is probably the first time in a very long time that they've had a full week worth of break um, to really recuperate, to really spend time on the training ground, to have your own space and all that. And, and, and you can see the effect of it on, on West Ham. I think it's a, it's a team that probably struggled with squad depth issues because they've had to play in Europa League and they've had to use the same team over in the Premier League every time they hit to the weekend. But at the one opportunity, um, after one week worth of rest, um, they, they really turned up against City. But unfortunately, when you're up against Man City, uh, even the tiniest bits of um, gaps that you allow City, you know they will come back. You know they will get a goal. Um, and in many ways, um, City could have taken, should have taken rather, the three points. Uh, but Riyad Mahrez obviously decided to miss the penalty. It, it, it's the one thing that I don't get about City. I don't get it because Riyad Mahrez has a tendency to miss these penalty shots. But every now and then, he's still given the responsibility. So, I, it, it's one of those things I don't understand either. Yeah, I agree with Krish. I don't understand the same thing. I mean, why Riyad Mahrez? You know, I'm a left-footed player. And if you look at the stats of left-footed players taking penalties, it's the worst. Is it? Yeah, it's, you, you don't look that up. It's, easy, then the... it's easier to save a left-footed player's penalty. Obviously, right. not Messi's, but everybody else. <laughs> well, I have to get Neo One uh, on the show to explain why that is the case. Could Neo One, is it the uh, the company, Keish? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, New Eleven, New Eleven. New, New Eleven, 11 yeah. sorry, sorry. New hey, 11, um, yeah. I, I want to talk about, uh, very quickly, uh, boring players again. Mark Noble, he, uh, this was his final appearance at... For, for West Ham at the, the what, Olympic Stadium. Is that what it's called now? London and City. He, he's played four, he has 471 appearances for West Ham. He has the second highest conversion rate in penalties after Lewandowski. Again, one of those workhorses. But, I mean, I don't think, will we ever see a, a one-club player again like that? Uh, yeah, I mean, again, uh, back to the one club player. The, the the market has changed so much. You know, you, the players earn so much money, and you know, if, if you are going, to, if you are a player and you have got limited time to make that money, you are going to go and look for better options. You know, the, the loyalty to the badge is gone. So I mean, kissing the badge is a is a good PR move, but that loyalty lasts only until the contract runs out. So yes, I think the, the the days of you will still see find one or two players who are who are born and bred for the club. You know, from, from the youth. And who have links to the club, and who want, to, and a lot of the English players do that because they don't, they don't like to move abroad and all that. But one, yeah, but it's in short supply though. So you have testimonials after two seasons. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a show for Des, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a it's a frustrating one, really, because um, it's, I mean, we all grew up with the idea of uh, football being very closely associated with values like loyalty and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is that modern football is, is has moved so far away from values like that um, simply because of simple things like, I mean, it, it's a business, right? Modern football is it's no longer, an, you know, clubs are no longer just an institution. Clubs are no longer a community-based entity. Clubs are these days, you know, a billion-dollar business um, whose first and foremost, their number one priority is to make a profit, not so much provide for the community, not so much uh, create a, a, a winning mentality or anything. It's it's number one profit. So under an environment like that, it's so, so difficult to still cultivate values like loyalty because based on what? These clubs are no longer the beacon of communities like they were in the past. 
uh, perhaps you will get values like loyalty when you go down the division, right? When you, you know, you might get it in, in, in the championship or you might get it in, in League One where clubs are still very much, very closely associated to the communities. But elsewhere, you, you just don't see it happening. And in an environment like that, it becomes virtually impossible to cultivate values like loyalty. And it's, it's, it's a sad thing. Mm. Well, uh, talking of clubs lower down the, the leagues, in a moment, we're going to talk about the relegation battle in the, on Off the Ball, BFM 89.9. Captain, leader, legend. Off the Ball on BFM 89.9. It's Off the Ball on BFM 89.9. And we're looking, as we come to the end of the Premier League season, we're looking at the relegation battle. Three matches took place, which, well, there are three teams who are really fighting for it. They're a point apart each. Let's start with Goglan. This was the real headline match of the group Everton 2 Brentford 3 it was kind of a mess Everton were looking really good and up for it but then a 17 minute red card otherwise I think Everton could have gone on to win that one and then this 87 minute red card which one of the worst tackles I've ever seen uh it just fell apart yeah again I think that seven that first red card was a bit harsh though because you know it, I think he was just clipped the play wide running it was there was no intent so it's like the, the straight red is for the intent because you know you're bringing on the last player but this was a clip which was you know he was as he was trying to get out of the way he clipped the guy's leg and of course it was a foul it's a yellow card and most so I think that was a bit harsh and I agree with Lampard the refereeing was a bit harsh on that side but you know, to completely lose the plot after that is it's inexcusable, especially in a relegation dogfight right that you are in now. You know, so I Everton, I I really fear for Everton. The, the especially after this game, the morale sapping defeat of this game. You know, the way Brentford just you know played around them. You know, it was after that it was just all Brentford, and those goals were you know it, it was not against a run and play. So I really don't understand what uh, Everton are going to, how Everton are going to get out of this mire. And, and Leeds are lucky that they Everton are so crap at the moment. You know, so the, 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 the three teams right now, Burnley, uh, Everton and Leeds are pretty much uh, not worthy of premiership status at the moment. Well, Everton still have the edge in points though, uh, Keish. They, they've, their run-in will be Crystal Palace and Arsenal. Really, they need to... Either win one or draw two, or my math is not very good. Help me out here. <laughs> I mean, I, I think if they were to beat Crystal Palace, they'll be fine. Because um, at the moment, they've played, uh, the, the Leeds have played one extra game and, and the gap is one point. I think if they beat Crystal Palace in midweek, that gap grows to four points. And then Everton are virtually fine. Um, it's, it's, it's an annoying game. Um, it was a really frustrating and an annoying game because I think uh, it showed the coaching deficiencies rather because I don't think the issue with Everton over the last few weeks, including um, the, the game last night, I don't think the issue has always been effort. I think in terms of effort, in terms of working your socks off on the pitch, I think you can't fault the Everton players. Uh, some of the runs that uh, Calvert Lewin was was dropping down um, to help the defence out. Um, Anthony Gordon was doing the same thing on the flanks. Mikolenko has been excellent for Everton down the left. Um, the players are giving it their all. They're trying the level best, but they just look clueless when it comes to crunch time, when they find themselves in a situation where they're under pressure, they're losing a game. Um, they don't have a variety. Um, it, it's always, you know, balls down the channel for Richarlison and then just expecting to, to create you know, something out of absolutely nothing. But when he gets, you know, doubled up, when he gets closely marked, 
they don't have another outlet. They, they, they can't conjure up a different strategy and plan. And I think one of the most glaring things that, that was very apparent in this game um, was just the difference um, in distribution of, uh, of both the goalkeepers. Because on one hand, you had David Raya for Brentford, who is so comfortable with the ball at his feet. And he was making really good passes that initiated attack, uh, attacks for Brentford. Um, whereas on the other hand, Jordan Pickford, I think throughout the game, if I'm not mistaken, there were at least five or six times when he just whacked the ball and returned possession to Brentford needlessly. Um, you know, it's stuff like that that's really frustrating. And, and honestly, even if Everton stay up, I really don't think sticking with Frank Lampard is going to be a really smart decision because I, I still can't see what exactly he brings to this team. I agree, and I think Goglin agrees. Goglin's never been a fan of uh, Frank Lampard's, but the the Everton faithful seem to really like him. Uh, wouldn't the worst thing be survival and keeping Lampard? Well, like Kish said, you know, the Lampard is, again, uh, he's there because his name is Frank Lampard. That's basically it. end of end of story. The fact that he gets gigs like this is because his name is Frank Lampard. And if even if they survive with Frank Lampard, it, it will be the wrong. It will be there is no plan under him. Mm. It will just exasperate what is already been going on at Everton, you know. And to be an Everton fan right now and see your Merseyside rivals, you know what they're doing day week in week out, and while you are suffering uh, the ignominy of losing to Brentford at home, is is ridiculous. And it's, especially, and to have a, a manager like Lampard at this stage is the wrong person. He has he's not up for a relegation dogfight. As you know, it's just a complete mess. Well, uh, Leeds won, Brighton won, so. Uh... Keish, Leeds have played one more game than both Everton and Burnley. This was They left this one pretty late, but they really went for it. With 19 shots, five of which were on target. And they didn't. They managed to have nobody sent off in this match, which was quite, which is a, <laughs> a, a first, I think. Uh, you know, Leeds, oh, they came so close. But, or did they? No, I mean... Uh... When I, when I knew we were going to speak about this lead games, uh, this Leeds game, I, I was I was hoping that we would get uh, Arvin on the show because there was a um, there was a video clip um, of Arvin who, who was watching this game alongside his friends from the Leeds United uh, um, supporters club. They were watching the game um, at a bar, and and you know Arvin just lost his his head when that um, equalizer went in right at the end of the game. It, it, the thing about Leeds United is they never make it easy for themselves. They really just never make it easy for themselves. And and to be fair to Jesse Marsh, uh, he, I think he's he's doing a pretty decent job. I think you can see clear, tangible patterns um, that are slightly different um, to what uh, to what um, Marcelo Bielsa did. You know, the, the, the usage of the width, how they use their wingers. I think they're a lot more narrower under Jesse Marsh. But obviously, big changes like that would take. Um, a lot more time, and the problem with Leeds and the and the timing of the Jesse Marsh appointment was that he was never going to get a lot of time. It was always about you know trying to get as much points on the board, and their run of fixtures has not been easy at all. Um, but but good for them. I think that draw still somewhat keeps them in the mix, and now they've got to just you know keep their fingers crossed and really 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 just hope that Crystal Palace do them a favor in midweek because if Crystal Palace can upset Everton. Then I think Leeds will go into the final match day believing that they can still survive. Because uh, their final match is against Brentford, uh, who are certainly no pushovers. I guess they're not playing for anything, but they weren't playing for anything against Everton and they just won. But uh, 
I don't know. I don't know. Because uh, you're right. I saw that video. Arvind and the entire Leeds United fan club, all five of them, uh, went very crazy. Uh, it was... Uh, the, the reason why he didn't come for the show today, mate. Oh, yeah, he's still recovering. <laughs> he's still recovering from the equaliser. So, Gogolin, uh, Spurs won Burnley nil. That scoreline needs to be repeated. Spurs won Burnley nil. Spurs were dominant, but only one goal. Um, although, for Conte, it would be the perfect Italian scoreline. Um, I don't... Well, anyway, well, Burnley have Aston Villa, your team, Aston Villa and Newcastle to come. I'm I'm confused by Spurs, actually. Explain them to me, can you? Well, I, I don't think we have enough time on the show to explain how to be a Spurs fan. But again, this was the dominant Spurs side again, and Burnley were resolute in their game. They they, they know what they are against. So they, they, I I really really cannot pull apart Burnley, Leeds, or Everton right now. You know, there's nothing actually to pull them apart. Like what you said, Everton have the have a game in hand, and Burnley have a game in hand against Leeds. And if you ask me, honestly, I really cannot pull the, those three apart right now on the relegation dogfight. It's it, they're pretty much all uh, screwed, and you know it's just, <laughs> they're that, all going to go down, are they? Yeah, I mean they all. <laughs> if, if they could, the goals three should go down. <laughs> but like be... I said, Leeds have the fighting spirit. I've always said that they're, they're the players and the fans behind them. You know, in in contrast to Burnley and Everton, Everton, yes, they are again. I just again, I, honestly, I really do can't pull them apart. So to explain, okay. Spurs, uh, Spurs are always up for again the North London derby, right? They are up for the big lights games. So that's Spurs for you. If they're playing City, they're playing United, they're playing Liverpool, or they're playing you know Arsenal, they'll be up for it. They will, they will, they will bring out the flashes and all that. And then the games like Burnley, where they have to break down a resolute uh, defense and all that. This is this is this is how it ends up. And with Conte, you have you have a master at unpicking defenses like this, right? Yeah. Well, we're going to talk uh, the battle for the fourth spot in a moment. So, Kishnan, um, Burnley, I don't know, as it sounds like um, Gogolin's thinking they're still in with a chance, but of these three, Leeds, Everton, Burnley, who do you think will go down? Ah, well, this is a tricky one. Um, because like Gogolin, I think when you look at the table, you'll see very clearly that very few things separate them. Uh, Burnley are on 34, Leeds on 35. Everton on 36. The only difference is that Leeds are obviously in a more tricky position because they've played 37 games um, and Everton and Burnley both have games in hands. But that doesn't mean that their upcoming fixtures are easy ones either because like, you know, um, Everton are facing Crystal Palace. Aston Villa are playing Burnley. I still, I still um, am more inclined to say that Burnley will go down. Um, I think Leeds will somehow just survive because when I, when I look at that final match there, I think Leeds are more than capable of getting a win over Brentford. I think Burnley will 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 drop points against Newcastle on the final match day, and I can't see Everton beating Arsenal. Not when Arsenal's top four um, hopes are very much alive as well. So it's a tricky one, but I'll go for Burnley to get relegated. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean. Yes, it has to be, surely. Anyway, uh, but in a moment, we're going to come back and look at the battle for fourth spot here on Off the Ball, BFM 89.9. Because whilst he's there, it's very difficult for other clubs to get near them. He's that good. Off the Ball on BFM 89.9. And we're back on Off the Ball with myself, Cam Rusland, Kishnan Sundaresan and Goglin. And now, as we come to the tail end of the Premier League season, we're going to be looking, for the, looking at the battle for fourth spot. Uh, Arsenal didn't play over the weekend, but they do have a match tonight. Newcastle against against Newcastle in Newcastle. 
And uh, just to give you a bit of context, Spurs now are on 68 points. Arsenal on 66, but with a game in hand. The final run-in will be Arsenal be playing Newcastle and then Everton. And Spurs will be playing Norwich, which Spurs being Spurs, I don't know, will somehow manage to fe- to lose. Uh, Goglin, with, with that in mind, and, and with having thought about the North London derby that happened recently, that Spurs won very convincingly 3-0, um, do you see Arsenal pipping them at the post and getting that fourth spot? Uh, again, a tricky one. Spurs have the momentum now after especially the North London derby, but it's still in Arsenal's hands. So, yes, uh, I, I, I personally hope Arsenal pick uh, Spurs for the Champions League spot because, you know, just to wind up a lot of Spurs fans. <laughs> but other than that, they had, uh, that North London derby was a bit of a shocker, though, if you ask me. You know, the way they could totally, uh, the way Spurs totally dominated that one was, I really didn't expect that. So, hopefully they recover from that and uh, it's still in their hands. So, yes. Arsenal to pick. But, um, you know, it's been a transitional year for both teams, Goglin. I mean, they, they've, they've really progressed, haven't they, from the beginning? Well, certainly Spurs in there have their moments, have shown what they can do. Arsenal are beginning to show what they're made of. They're, they're, they're here to stay. They're, they're Champions League teams, aren't they? Oh, yeah, but these teams are made up for Champions League teams. But Spurs, again... Conte is the manager for a Champions League. So, yes, Ateta, like I've spent so many times on the show, it's a project that he has, right? To trust the process and all that stuff. So, he's building a team for the Champions League. If you ask me which team will go further in the Champions League, if they qualify, then definitely Spurs because they have the manager to back them in that in that era, in that area. So, these are, yes, to answer your question, they are Champions League teams. They're built, made for Champions League teams. But the way Arsenal started and for them to get a Champions League spot this season is a, is a real badge for Ateta, you know, mm. yeah. for, the, for them. So he, 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 and he will build his confidence as a manager. He will build his, he has, he has a philosophy that we, Akish was speaking about philosophy. He has a philosophy. He has molded the side. He has got rid of the, the troublemakers in Arsenal, you know, so he's get, trying to get his own players in. So if you ask me for the long-term process, I would go with Arsenal. Okay, Kish, uh, put the same question to you then. With the with bearing in mind the matches they've got left, who do you think is going to get that fourth spot? Oh, this this, this is the one that I, I'm very clear about. I mean, I know what my head wants. I know what my I, I sorry. I know what my heart wants. I know what my head is saying. Um, my heart wants Arsenal, um, and 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 it's only because I genuinely appreciate the work that Mikel Arteta has had to do at Arsenal. Um, everything that has gone on, everything that has transpired at, at the club over the last decade or so, you know, the departure of Arsene Wenger, uh, the, you know, the, the Arsenal struggling on the continental stage, Arsenal falling into um, you know lower depths in the Premier League as well, different managers coming in and out and just struggling to make it work, Mikel Arteta being criticised, and finally they start to figure things out at the end of last season. And, and you look at their signings for this season, right? Everything has been done according to a specific style of play, a specific plan. And all of them fell from your Aaron Ramsdales to your Ben Whites to your Tomiyasus. Um, Sambi Lokonga is a great one for the future. And then you've got Martin Odegaard, who I think is going to be the future Arsenal captain. So you, you look at the work that's being put in place um, to revive a, a, a wounded tiger, and and you you finally you can appreciate it because you know you know it, it's not the kind of things you can do overnight. It's the kind of thing that takes time. And Ateta 
has really taken that time and he's been afforded that time as well to Arsenal's credit. And, and that is why it'll be a, a, a genuine nice end to the season if all that effort, all that work, um, all that progressive approach, uh, you know, ends up in them getting into the Champions League. That's what my heart wants. Mm-hmm. But my head says Spurs. Oh. But my head oh. clearly says Spurs. Because I look at that Arsenal fixture against Newcastle and I'm not confident. And I look at Arsenal against Everton, possibly with Everton looking to desperately stay up as well. And I'm not too confident. And then I look at Spurs and they only have to play Norwich, a relegated Norwich side and and a Norwich side that every team has a lot of fun scoring goals against them. So my my, my head is saying Tottenham Hotspur for the fourth spot. Yeah, I you know you know while we've been talking, I my memory is so bad, and so much has happened this year. I can't remember who the manager of Spurs was at the beginning of the season. <laughs> Can someone remind me? No, no, Espirito Santo. Yeah. Oh my God, ex Wolves. Yeah, where are they now? Where are they? <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, the progression though, the, the the performances you see now from the same batch of players at Spurs compared to then. It's an incredible transformation, Goglin. I mean, you got to you got to give it to him. Of course, Conte. I mean, yeah, the, the the transformation is again. I don't know what that uh, uh, that. I don't really think Nuno was the first choice. I think there was somebody else, right? Was, I think they said they were saying he was fifth. It was like Kish. said out loud, wasn't it? Kishu was the other people in there before Nuno picked up the job. There was a bunch of them. Paulo Fonseca, I think the former Roma boss, was right in the mix. Yeah. I think, to be fair, Conte himself was sort of there. But um, I think he initially distanced himself from the role, um, thinking that he would you know, uh, possibly get an offer from bigger, from a bigger club like Man United or something like that. But I think Paulo Fonseca was the guy that they were really closely having discussions with. Yes, Fonseca. Yeah, I remember that. Then something happened, right? What happened? I think the crowd turned against the idea. It oh, was, yeah, yeah, it yeah. Was, yeah. It was yeah, something yeah. along that line. Yeah. yeah, something along that So, yeah, yeah. You know, Spurs fans deserve all the showroom fraud that they get, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's always so hard to remember the beginnings of seasons. Uh, I can remember, I can remember like the, the 80s like it was yesterday, but. <laughs> that's, why we have, that's why we have Twitter. So it comes back, the, it comes back to haunt you. Yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, speaking of Twitter, actually, uh, it's a nice segue. I want to, uh, Keish, I want to take us to your team, Manchester United, who did not play. Oh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> but I just want to give a scoreline of Maguire 1, Lingard 0. Um, reports, true or not, I don't know, of fighting in the camp, literal fighting. Uh, perhaps uh, you could tell us what's been going on, Keish? <laughs> I mean... It's not like I live um, next door to Carrington to be able to get a bird's eye view of the fight. Uh, I, I don't know as well. I'm, I'm not sure if that's the case. Um, if it is, I'm not surprised. Um, if it isn't, um, I mean, it still does not entirely dismiss um, the case that is being built against Jesse Lingard at the moment. I, I know, to be fair to him, he's been unfairly treated by the club. Uh, I, I think the club should have allowed Jesse Lingard to leave permanently, even last year. I think. Um, at the very least, in January, you should have let him go. I think the the board were desperate to keep uh, to keep on to him. Um, the moment the entire Mason Greenwood scandal broke up, um, and, and they were desperate to keep on to him, even though Ragnick had already given the, the green light. So I think the club did not, um, you know, um, help Jesse Lingard himself. But 
but the guy himself has not done himself any uh, favors uh, by the way he's behaved at the club. By the way, you know, there are reports that he is the guy that leaks a lot of um, internal dressing room matters on the outside. Through his brother, through his brother on yeah, Twitter. Yeah, through his brother. Yeah, so there's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff that, that's building around that. And 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 look, I, I'm not the kind of guy who jumps on rumours that comes out on newspapers like The Sun and then on parade players like Jesse Lingard. Because I know Lingard himself has had a very rough time. He's had a a, a, a rough time with, with family problems over the last two years, which has led to his dip in form. Uh, these are things that he never spoke about in public, only an, up, up till the end of last year. So it's not been easy for Lingard either. Um, it's just frustrating as a Man United fan because Lingard is a guy that came through the academy that at one point had a lot of love from Man United fans. And it's just frustrating to see him and his relationship in this way. Um, uh, uh, talks of the fighting and all that, I'm not sure. But I'm not surprised if the argument is that the dressing room is divided. Um, it's 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 the one thing that honestly I will say that look like Oligana Solskjaer had a lot of critics. Oligana Solskjaer can can be criticised for his tactics and all that kind of stuff. But if there's one thing you can never criticise Oligana Solskjaer for, um, it was always his man management skills. The way he's wrapped his arms around Luke Shaw and got the best out of him. The way he built a team. Um, that was very united even when they went through sort of like rough patches. And you see, and, and you can see how that squad is entirely disintegrated um, this season under a, a different setup. So if, if the reports claim that there's infighting within United and the dressing room is not, uh, you know, united, so to say, at the moment, then I'm, I'm not surprised really. Uh, yeah, Goglin, I'm hoping you're, you are the kind of guy who will run with a scurrilous rumour. Uh, <laughs> Because <laughs> Keisha's abdicated. Um, it's the sun. It's the sun, Cam. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I mean, you know, uh, okay. Well, let's. Let it, we're, we're talking about the kind of uh, fractured relationship that you normally hear about from either the French national team or the Dutch national team. <laughs> um, but uh, but Manchester United are not playing the kind of football that you would often see from the French national team or the Dutch national team. Well, to go back to what Kish said, the only thing I can point point out that's happening behind the scenes, it points out to this, because I'm trying to justify their actions on the pitch. You know, a team with those kind of players, you know, then and then these type of stuff come out. It, it makes sense. This is the only thing that I can point to, the fractured relationship in the dressing room, that the players are not playing for each other. You know, not playing. there's an interim manager there that they know who's going to leave. There's a new manager coming in. So, And then you have players who are being amplified on social media for their lack of whatever. You know, Maguire is getting roasted all the time. So, And then this translates to the pitch. So it, there has something that has to be going around behind the scenes. And the only thing I can uh, testify is to this, right? Yeah, and I guess also it takes this takes us as we leave the Premier League for a moment. It takes us full circle back to where we were at the beginning, where a team that has a Jordan Henderson, a James Milner, or a Mark Noble. Yeah, leaders. So leaders. Yeah? Is there? I'm going to ask Keish as a Man U fan, who's the leader now? Other is Ronaldo the leader? No, but 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 here's here, here's here's my problem, and and I've always been. Um, how do I say this? I've always been upfront about this from, from the beginning of the season, um, which is that Cristiano Ronaldo is an incredible player. And um, and I grew up, you know, watching so much of Ronaldo. My entire childhood was shaped by Ronaldo, you know, running down the wings for, for Man United. And, and I cannot say enough about him. I absolutely loved his time at Man United. But I think his return to Man United was a move that never should have happened Um 
for multiple reasons. And we've spoken about the, the, the on-the-pitch reasons um, so many times. But I'll say how Ronaldo's return to the club f- further undermined a lot of the other existing leaders within the club. And simple example is that Harry Maguire uh, is, not, is not Virgil van Dijk. Harry Maguire is not Sergio Ramos. But he's also not the clown that Twitter will make you believe he is. Um, he's a pretty decent defender and he's a pretty decent leader um, who, when he joined United, United's, um, you know, the season before Maguire joined United, United had considered like 60-something goal, goals in the Premier League. And the season Maguire joined, the very first season, it was reduced by 50%. United only considered 30-something goals and he was appointed the captain. Now, I don't know if appointing him the captain was the right decision or not, but regardless of whether you appointed him the captain, his character always meant that he was always going to be a leader in the dressing room. He was always going to be a leader. And my problem with someone like Ronaldo coming in into the, an existing dynamic like this is that you immediately undermine your leader. Now, imagine a scene, and we've seen this scene multiple times, a scene of United players lining up inside the Old Trafford Tunnel and you've got Harry Maguire standing up there as the captain, but you've got Ronaldo going around and behaving like he is the guy. That is the captain. And I think things like that creates, you know, fractures, relationships. It creates, um, um, what do you call that, cliques within the dressing room where certain players would, you know, look up to certain others. And it, it, it completely breaks apart the dynamic that was previously constructed under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Again, I'm not saying that Ronaldo is a bad guy. I'm saying that his arrival just broke that, that dynamic apart. Um, so do I think United have leaders in the team? Yes, I do. I do. I just think that it's a it's a fractious team at the moment, um, and, and you need a guy. I don't know if Ten Hag is, is he has to do it, like it or not. Um, you've got to bring the dressing room back together again. It's going to be fascinating to watch them next season. Absolutely fascinating. But we move on. And speaking of next season, uh, we'll be talking about the Championship playoffs in a moment here on Off the Ball BFM eighty nine point nine. England's highest quality title race of all time, but coming out on top again in the Premier League, Manchester City. Off the ball on BFM 89.9. And we're in part four of Off the Ball, BFM 89.9. We're going to be looking at the championship playoffs, and a little later we're going to look at the C games. So we start off, Kishnan, with, um, I, you know, I don't follow the championship too closely. Uh, I live it kind of vicariously through uh, Bob Holmes. <laughs> who is a big fan of Nottingham Forest. But uh, the first match was Luton Town 1, Huddersfield Town 1. Luton Town fans are ecstatic. Uh, Not expecting, I think, to have managed to get a draw against form team Huddersfield Town, who looked pretty impressive, but were unable to get the the win. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, Luton, I I don't think they expected to find themselves um, to be in the playoffs even, right? Um, It it was a massive feat to to even qualify for the playoffs. And and to their credit, I thought they actually played really, really well against Huddersfield. I know they went into the game as the clear underdogs, um, but they they, they did quite well. I think they created, um, they had more shots than Huddersfield in the game. Um, Even when Huddersfield went 1-0 up, I thought the way they responded um, to going 1-0 down very early on because Huddersfield scored as early as the 12th minute and the way they responded to it and eventually they got the equaliser on the 30th minute as well. Um, it, it was a pretty solid team performance from Luton and honestly, if I'm like when you look at that performance um, in that in that first leg, um, 
I genuinely don't think it's still clear-cut. I still don't think that, you know, Huddersfield are going into the second leg as favourites now. I can very well see Luton causing an upset here and, and, and moving into the playoff finals. Well, I, I, I was talking off air early on and I was thinking Huddersfield are the favourites. But again, I don't have any clarity on that, this thing. So I'll follow what Kish is saying on this. And you think Luton's got to in him with a chance then, Kish? I, I, I'm just basing it on what, what we saw in the game the other day. Because um, when you... We're, we're, when you watch the highlights of the game, it'll be pretty clear that both teams, it was pretty equal in terms of chances that were created in terms of the number of shots that were being unleashed from both sides. I think possession stats also indicated that both teams were almost similar. I think Luton had like 48% and Huddersfield had something around 52%. Um, so it, it was very, um, it, was an, it was a level playing field. And I, I felt the one-all result um, reflected um, what we saw on the pitch as well. And, and to be fair, yeah, sorry, you're saying... Yeah, no, yeah. I'm not so sure. I, I felt that, that, that Huddersfield Town showed an underlying quality. I mean, they were just unable to, to convert their chances, but they had an underlying quality that was better than Luton Town. I mean, certainly, that, that, that was always going to be the case, right? Because they have a better set of players. They've played in the Premier League before as well. They were always going to look better. But this is what, the question I want to ask, though. Uh, I'll ask it of you, Gogolin. If you're a Luton Town fan, and your team gets lucky and gets past Huddersfield Town, let's say gets past the other one, gets up into the Premier League, and that get, and then gets crushed week in, week out in the Premier League, because it would be getting lucky. Is it, is it even worth it? I still remember Luton Town being in the, well, not Premiership, the English First Division. But th- didn't they have a plastic pitch then? Have I, was yeah, I dreaming? Yeah, Luton and QPR had plastic pitches then. Yeah, yeah, it was okay. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's would they want to? Well, yeah, of course, every team wants to get there, right? So again, once you get there, then the funding comes in, the amount of money that you get from the TV and all that. And again, how you invest that wisely, right? Into buying players and all that. And so that, 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 and therein lies the conundrum where, you know, how you spend that money wisely, you know, Villa or Villa and Fulham famously spent all that money on, you know, I, was it Fulham, I think, who spent all that money and then went straight, went all the way back down. Mm. And so it's how you spend that money getting players and how you get found out in the day. You cannot have the same philosophy of playing the championship at the premiership. This is what I'm, I personally think, you know, you have to have a different philosophy. I completely agree. And, and, and coming back to what your, your question was, Cam, would they want to go up and get smashed? I think yes. Really? I, it doesn't matter. Go up and get smashed. At the very least, you went up. I think it's still an incredible journey for Luton Town to get potentially promoted to the Premier League. It's still an incredible journey. And I agree with Gokes. A club like Luton Town, the moment you jump up to the Premier League, uh, the gap in what you will earn is insane. And that's when clubs can start to make investments. Um, but but it'll still be a ride. And, and it'll still be a ride that they can thoroughly enjoy. And, and we've seen we've seen these clubs enjoy it. Like, you know, Huddersfield enjoyed it under David Wagner, um, even though they retain largely a squad made up of championship quality players only. Um, we've seen Brentford, you know, do really well this season. Although, you know, they, they are slightly different. They've got a very efficient uh, recruitment model. But, but in, my, my point is, if I'm a Luton Town fan, I don't care if we're getting smashed next year. I'm just going to be focusing on the fact that we got to the Premier League in the first place. Okay. Yeah, because it raises the profile, right? Luton Town is suddenly in the Premier League. You know, the, the, yeah. the profile of that already is enough, in, and it, 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 it generates money in different ways. Suddenly, all the tourism comes in. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, I've, and I've been to Luton. <laughs> yes. And, don't, and li- dear listener, don't go to Luton. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but uh, okay, I just want to ask, just make one final point. The worst job in the world, I think, is being a manager of a club that progresses to the Premier League. 
because the chances are you'll be sacked before the end of the season. <laughs> or, or no, the worst job is when you're a manager of a club that's being bought by a so- uh, sovereign wealth fund. <laughs> yeah, yeah, correct. <laughs> well, you're going to pay off then. Um, okay, let's uh, very quickly then, because Bob will talk us through it. I would imagine at length later on. Um, but the uh, Bob was Bob was saying that if uh, Forrest lost one nil against Sheffield United, he would have been quite happy, and then take that back to Nottingham Forest and then and then win. But in, in this case, it was Sheffield United one, Nottingham Forest two, and I thought that Forrest looked very good. Keish, did you? I, they they to me feel like the team that should progress. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. I thought I thought they looked really really good against. Um, Sheffield, because the thing about Sheffield is they've still got pretty, uh, there's still a bunch of them who have Premier League experience. Um, they played last year and, and 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 they've done really well to ensure that even when they drop from the Premier League, that they kind of still remain somewhat competitive to be able to get an immediate pushback into the Premier League. That's always the most tricky things. And I've got a lot of respect for teams that are able to do that too. You know, the moment you drop, from the Premier League, you somehow find a way to remain competitive enough to, you know, be a, be about the playoff positions. Uh, but but against Nottingham Forest, I thought even though the score was one two, but I thought it, it could have been a lot a lot lot a lot more. Like I thought Nottingham Forest could have at least scored three or four goals easily in that game. Um, they were they were really really good. I know Sheffield United dominated the possession, um, but Forest looked really good on the break. Um, and and to be fair to be fair to them, even though Forest have not been in the Premier League for a very long time. Um, they've got players in that squad. Uh, they've got Premier League experience. I mean, you talk about Jack Callback. Um, you know, we used to play for Newcastle. He scored one of the goals in Sheffield United as well. Um, you've got James Garner there, who is really, really highly rated. Um, I think even in Man United, um, there's a lot of talk about James. You know, is James Garner the uh, long-term future to Man United's um, crisis in midfield, so to speak? Um, and if, if a club at, at the size of Man United is looking at someone like James Garner as a long-term solution, the fact that he's playing for Nottingham Forest means that there's you know incredible quality there for Forest. So, I, of of the four teams that we just spoke about, honestly, from purely from the point of view of romanticism, I want to see Forest back in the Premier League. Um, I want to see them get up. Um, it's 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 a romantic football club with a lot of history, um, and it's got a passionate set of fans as well. But more importantly, I just want to I just want to see the joy on Bob's face when he gets to preview. Forest games week in week out, yeah. That's the whole point of it. <laughs> exactly. Oh, no. Yeah, I mean the pre- the Premiership, oh, the Premier League dear. needs the Forest back in it. Yeah, so yeah. they're they they're the people's choice. Well, yes. Again, like what I agree with Keish, you know, the romantic side of us all want Forest back. You know. Yeah, they they were in the Premier League. They weren't just in the first division. Like my uh, memory, uh, yeah, the first division, not the Premier League. They're now in the Premier League, right? Never, never in the Premier League. No. Um. Okay, so uh, Kishnan, finally, I haven't left us much time, but uh, Malaysia in the C Games, it's uh, it's not going too badly. Yeah, not going too badly. We've we've qualified for the knockout stages. Um, have we qualified? We have, we have, we have uh, qualified. Um, yeah. I mean, at the time of recording of this of this um, show, obviously, um, we still have that that game this later this evening to play against um, Cambodia. Uh, but we've already qualified. I think if we beat Cambodia, we we, we will top the group. But you know, regardless, we've qualified already. It's a it's a tricky one because compared to previous Malaysian teams at the Sea Games, um, this Malaysian team is genuinely young. We've opted not to take any senior players, even though there's a quota of three senior players allowed 
um, for for each team. Um, we've opted to go with a fully young squad um, because we're treating the Sea Games more of a uh, more of like a preparatory tournament for the Under 23 Asian Cup that happens in June, which is the bigger goal, which is the bigger mission. And I kind of like that approach, really. I really like that approach. I think it's about time we we stop putting so much of focus on on the Sea Games and start to prioritize bigger things. And so I like the fact that we are we are going with a fully young squad. And I think my favorite my favorite favorite thing about Malaysia so far at the Sea Games um, is that a bunch of players are silencing their doubters because um, there's a lot of doubters for some of the Slango boys that Daniel Astri gets gets you know criticized a lot on social media for his performances uh, over the last few months. But he has somewhat silenced his critics. Um, I think Hadi Fayad, who's been in Japan, struggled with ACL injury. He's been criticized a lot, but I think he's been the ultimate team player. Almost like he reminds me with a bit of how Giroud played for France at the World Cup in 2018. Scored zero goals, but was easily one of the most important players on the pitch in terms of linking everything together. Um, and I quite like Hadi Fayad in that role for Malaysia as well. But most importantly, that boy Lukman Hakim, he's been the one that's come under a lot of pressure simply because he plays in Belgium. You know, he's got that tagline of being the Malaysian golden kid um, with supposed, uh, you know, with supposedly the responsibility to rescue Malaysian football from the wilderness. But it, it, uh, he's got all that pressure on his shoulders um, and he's struggled, to be fair, where every time he's turned up on, in national colours. But in this tournament, he's, he's got some goals. He's, I think he's got three goals now, uh, which is a really good thing for his confidence. I think he was really emotional as well after getting those goals. Um, so it's, I'm, I'm just genuinely happy for him. So it's been a it's been a really surprisingly good tournament so far for Malaysia and, and I'm excited to see how they go about it in the knockout stages. Yeah, so Gogolin, are you are looking forward to the national holiday when uh, Malaysia <laughs> wins the season? Yeah. <laughs> I agree with Kish that we should start, you know, not stop prioritizing the Sea Games like it's, a, it's the big thing and, you know, start blooding the youth, trust the youth and, you know, look for bigger fish to fry. Hmm. Well, uh, on that note, and good luck to Malaysia, we come to the end of this week's show. And, uh, well, it's coming nearly to the end of the whole football season. We have two more Monday shows and two more Friday shows. So please join us for the Friday show. Uh, but for now, it's Kishno Sundaresa. Cheers, guys. Enjoy the week. It's going to be a it's going to be a crazy, crazy week of football. Yes. Some people are going to be happy and Arvin's going to be sad. And uh, <laughs> and uh, and Goglin, thank you. Yes, thanks for having me on a Monday. And don't worry, Avin, leads will be fine. Yeah. Okay. And uh, myself, Cam Rustam. Please join us on on Friday. But for now, it's off the ball. BFM eighty nine point nine. Build a mentality in that dressing room that's powerful, strong, made them feel like they're unbeatable. What a coach. Off the ball on BFM eighty nine point nine. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.